Coming to you from the UCLA campus, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm speaking with a writer, well, I should say a novelist, a poet, a film producer, a translator. Grace Jung is her name. She's here in town just for today. She's not an Angelino. She is actually a New Yorker, but she's written a novel called Delhi Ideology that touches on something that it touches on a milieu, I guess I'll use that word, I'll bust out milieu right now, that Angelinos will know. Even though it's set half in New York, half in Seoul, it is the world of, oh, it's the world of Koreans in America, Korean-Americans, Korean-Americans in Korea. How do you describe what sort of part of the Venn diagram Delhi ideology is on in that sense? It's about being a young Korean-American who is graduated into a recession can't find a job, although has the, uh, the college education to ideally get a job. And um, I wanted to draw comparisons to um, the intellectuals during the Japanese occupation in Korea and how many similarities there were between the two, but also obviously many, many differences. As I say, a tale between two cities, New York and Seoul. Is it I get the sense, having at the end of the novel, I got the sense it was evenly divided between, between them. Is that true? Yeah, I, that was intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wrote it so that it's past tense, third-person narrative for the soul scenes, and first-person present tense for the New York scenes. And that was also intentional. I wanted to differentiate that. And your protagonist, LJ, has... A different life and soul than she has in New York. And we'll, you know, we'll start with what the title is referring to in part. She works at a deli in New York, but not the whole, it's not all she does. I mean, she has, uh, what's her schedule? What, what does she do for work? It's so much. So she works as a copywriter at a PR firm five days a week, a typical nine to five from Monday to Friday. And then to help with her income, she works weekends at a deli. Saturdays and Sundays from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So seven-day work schedule. And uh, she's not the only... I'll, I'll refer to her as if she was real. She's not the only person you know subject who's been subject to that after college, right? A lot of young people were subject to like doing some manual labor, also you know, working part-time for something that's maybe a little bit more intellectually stimulating, like being a research assistant for PhDs or... Um, but also trying to do their own artistic work, you know, as like a writer, singer, actor, whatever. Um, and there are a lot of that in New York. And I don't think it's new. I don't think that culture or concept is new. Like in Carlito's way, and this was in the book, um, when, when Al Pacino says to his girlfriend at the time, like, why are all of your friends on their way to becoming somebody else, you know? Like, yeah, I think New York sort of... Um, encourages that for people to sort of pursue their dreams but also be responsible financially and um, in an LJ's case yeah she was working this job that sort of helped her use like her skills in writing and reading doing the copy editing work but it wasn't enough she was getting paid like 11 an hour and it just wasn't enough so she had to substitute that by working a deli job which is mind-numbing but also it's rewarding in some ways too and this deli is where we see, it's the setting of LJ's New York life that we see, uh, for the most part. What, what kind of place is this? I feel like a lot of, a lot of the New York sections could have happened here in Los Angeles, but not the, not the fact that it's this kind of deli. It's not something we necessarily have here. What, what is, what is the deli of this book? 
What is the deli of this yeah, book? Yeah, it's a different type of business than we have here. We don't really have this. What people get. All kinds of things there. Sometimes pay way too much for them. Sometimes try to steal. Uh, fill styrofoam containers full of a lot of different kinds of food and pay twenty bucks for it. What is this a type of business that's just everywhere in New York? There are a lot of them, and a lot of them are owned by Korean American or Korean store owners. So yeah, in in one sense, it does function as a deli. So you get you can get pastrami meats, cut sandwiches, whatever. It also works as like a little a simple convenience store. Gum, candy, what have you, cigarettes, and it also works as like a buffet-style restaurant, like a takeout. But you know, it's sort of help yourself, and they they weigh the food by the pound. So they have a salad bar and they have a hot food tray bar, and um, yeah, that's really common in New York. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a part of the. It's the one thing that. I thought, yeah, you couldn't necessarily tell the American half of this book in Los Angeles because so much could be the same because there are so many Koreans and Korean Americans here. There's that culture here. There's the culture of, you know, she hears a variety of languages. LJ does the kind of things she observes go on could happen here, but the deli itself, we don't really have them. So the setting is very New York, and you know, the things she sees happen there. You, the reader gets a lot of exposure through her through her eyes to who comes and goes in the deli, what they do, whether they're stealing or just buying or doing whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember on Twitter a while ago, one of these sort of just Twitter funny guys, you know, who's, who have a lot of followers and say jokes all the time. That's a lot of Twitter users right there. But one of the better known ones, he had this tweet I found hilarious a while ago, which was, he says, every story my grandma tells includes the race of everybody involved. And I thought it was hilarious because it's a, just a, it's a, it's an, a joke on, it's an observation on the behavior of old white ladies, essentially. But... What is it an observation on when LJ notices the race of everyone in, involved in these New York deli stories? And she, this is a young Korean-American woman, not an old white lady where we would laugh and say, oh, that's what they do. You know, what is, why does LJ notice everyone's race? I think the difference between an old white lady pointing out a person's race and LJ, a Korean-American woman of color pointing out race, is that LJ is a woman of color. White woman isn't. So here's the thing. Like, I made LJ... LJ's narration point out the race of every single person in this book, including white people, because that was my, I felt like that was like my responsibility as a writer who is a woman of color. So I studied English literature in college. I've been pursuing creative writing for, for a number of years. And whenever I read a book or the books that I've read in college, they always, like the white race was always the default. The author was white. Anybody that they described around them, a man or a woman, was always just a man or a woman. And then they would go into character depth. What kind of woman was she? You know, was she a quiet woman? Was she a loud woman? This or that. But they never pointed out the fact that she was maybe like a wasp or a Scottish, British, whatever. But if it was like a black, Asian, Latina, whatever, then they would point it out. And I was like, that is so annoying, you know? <laughs> it's really annoying. And you know what? Like, I, I kind of get it, you know, because, um, you know, we still use the word majority when we describe the white population in America. Um, so when I was studying, okay, so in 2009, right after I graduated college, I went to Seoul as a Fulbright research grantee, and I was studying modern Korean literature during the Japanese occupation. And the literature from that time had a lot of diverse elements. So, like, Korean writers at the time were studying in China, Russia, Germany, and they were studying, like, all kinds of literature from all around the world. And 
the only time that those writers would point out a person's ethnicity or race was when they were not Korean. Right. Okay, so as you would expect, I think. Right, in a, yeah. in a homogenous society, right? But you know, right now, like currently, you know, the U.S. is not homogeneously white. It's super diverse, and um, you know, the reason why I had L.J. point out the race as part of the overall description of who these people were. Like, L.J. wouldn't say, like, some black guy walked in. No, it would be, like, some black guy named Donald with the dreadlocks who comes in every morning to get fruit and a bagel. You know, like, a full description to get a full picture of who this guy was and and the interaction that Donald has with L.J. Like, that's what I wanted, you know? And it's it's her mind as well. I mean, she's she has the kind of mind that is... Watching for detail like that, right? That wants to know what exactly composes a person and what their patterns of behavior are, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how we all sort of internalize others around us, right? It's like taking in information. Um, I had this one friend. Um, she was the first person I showed my manuscript to when I f- finished writing the book, and I was disappointed when she said to me, "Why is your character so obsessed with race? Like, she's obsessed with race." And you know what? Like at the time, I was so bothered by this critique because I'm like, if you were growing up in America as an Asian American woman, you would definitely be obsessed with race too, because people will constantly remind you that you're Korean. Do you know what I mean? Like everywhere. So that's the source I go- of her, if you want to call it obsession or whatever it is, her. That's the source of her, the thoughts she has about race. I mean, it's just like. Seeing race as part of an overall identity is just, that's just a part of her character and part of her world perception. Mm. Like, pretty much anybody who is a person of color in the U.S. will include race in descriptions of mm. other people, you know? Would she, we, of course we mentioned that in the soul sections of the book, it's not from her perspective, it's third person. But if it was, would, would LJ be thinking about who was what race, or would she just get bored of saying that everybody was Korean except for certain characters? <laughs> That's what I wondered. Yeah, well, in the book, she doesn't really point out anybody around her as being Korean, right? Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. I guess, I, I guess LJ really does identify as 100% Korean in a way. I mean, she's 100% American. She identifies with that, too, but she's also 100% Korean. So, yeah, it's like when you're in a homogenous society, you don't see the need to do that. The only people whose races you will point out are, like, the people who are not Korean, mm-hmm. which LJ does do when she's in Seoul. Now, how was... I suppose, Ella, let's get a little background here. You're, for your own time in Seoul, had you been going to Korea a lot before that or not? I was born and raised in Busan, Korea, the first five years of my life. And then my parents moved our family to Brooklyn, New York, when I was about to enter kindergarten. And then 13 years after that, when I was 18, I went back to Korea for the first time to visit. I went back again as a Fulbright research grantee. And then since then, I kind of like, every couple of years, I'll find a reason to go back. Mm -hmm. Was it immediately apparent to you this was a good setting, Korea or Seoul? Yeah, it's an amazing city. It's true. I love it. It's so fun. Although I like Busan as well. I hope you write something oh. set in Busan at some point. Your Busan birthplace. Is amazing. Oh my God. No, Busan's amazing. But yeah, I have things in the work with Busan in it too. But yeah, no, Seoul is like such a fun city. It's like, it's as if the city was created for the sole purpose 
to make it really fun for whoever is in the city, you know? And not New York? No, New York is designed to crush you, to destroy you. New York is making every effort to kick you out of the city. And the real New Yorkers are the ones who don't take that personally. Yeah, they, know to, they, they know how to stick it through. No, Soul is amazing, you know. We mentioned the way she observes race, but how different a character is LJ when she's in Seoul? How different a person is she when she's in Seoul versus when she's in New York? I don't think she feels uh, as much confidence in Seoul. Um, but at the same time, she's a lot more free in Seoul. Like, she's a bit of a drifter, like a flaneur. Her day-to-day isn't rigid as it is in New York. You know, she's there only to work on her translations, to meet people, to write, to have a creative experience. And, like, yeah, I think her, the scenes of her in Seoul is, like, like, a creative honing process, whereas in New York, it's more like back in the grind, back at home, <laughs> trying to figure it out. When she gets back to America, she becomes, in a sense, one of the sort of millennials trying to figure themselves out, right? She's not that in Korea. No, people are, don't seem to be talking about that in Korea, do they? That sort of... I, I, my grasp of Korean is not good enough to read newspapers quickly, but I haven't seen a trend piece like the one that sort of bothered you in the New York Times. What's up with her? What's the deal with 20-somethings? I mean, what, what, was, what, was, what was that article all about? The what's the deal with the 20-somethings? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I... The chapters for uh, Saturday and Sunday were dated solely around that article and the day that it was published. I so was this so- real article you read in the New York Times brought the dates to this book that you were writing, and why? Why? What, what got to you? That article bothered me so much. <laughs> it was so judgmental of millennials. It offered no solution for the millennials. Yeah, absolutely. We were, like, so crushed. Our souls were so crushed when we graduated college. You know, we suffered eight years of the Bush administration. We've been tormented all four years of high school, all four years of college with the economy potentially collapsing and it did as soon as we graduated college I mean we were so terrified and depressed and anxious and we had nowhere to turn to so like I think a lot of us knew how to react to that with some sense of joy and freedom and say I'm gonna take my time to do whatever I want and figure it out and this article was like millennials are being irresponsible for our future I'm like listen honey (laughs) if you're a sociologist you should be trying to offer us solutions and part of the reason why we're suffering right now is probably because of some of the damage that your generation has caused you know so you know don't write an article that's purely criticizing us we feel bad as you know bad as it is life's hard enough you know so i was really um yeah i was quite angry at the article but you know but can i can our generation do anything but sort of ignore the criticisms of the shiftless millennials or what have you and just sort of do our own thing i mean that's kind of that's what's left us right i think maybe the article left out some of the great potential that we had so like okay there's this amazing book that um, I'm still trying to finish reading that Rem Kulas edited. It's called um, The Metabolism. Oh, that thing. I've seen that on shows. That thing. <laughs> That's the best word. Okay. It's such... It's this collection of amazing work. So Japan was bombed by the U.S., right? World War II ended. They were destroyed. They had nothing. And the the this the, the artists of the community, not just artists, but like public policymakers, all these people, they got together and started to create a very vague movement with a very specific goal in mind. It was to revitalize Japan in some way. And from that, 
there came like revolutionary creative designs, architecture, yeah. amazing stuff, right? Listeners, look up the uh, Nakagin capsule tower. Uh, you'll see a good example of metabolism uh, in, uh, I forget the guy, Kurokawa, something like that, but it's really cool. Like amazing stuff. And they, they were at zero and they, in just a few decades, they became amazing, right? Um, like, okay, so economy collapses, the millennials have no jobs. They're suffering. They're in a horrible state. In that place of complete zero and bottom, there's a huge potential to do something really new, you know, really cutting edge, really creative. And like, if you're in that place of suffering, your, your urge to like really like, you know, be resilient, really bounce back up, it's going to be really like strong. And there are a lot of millennials who took that into like, took that, made that their advantage, made that suffering their advantage. And, you know, like, just, you know, what I wrote the book in 2010, yeah, so, like, five years, like, right now, we're doing so much better, you know, like, you know, people are working in the tech industry, people are working in the art industry, film industry, and they're doing amazing stuff, you know? It that we're all a little bit older, too, a little more mature. <laughs> yeah, a little bit more mature <laughs> yes, and met yes. more people, but no, but, like, th I would say this is still a result of that period of feeling like there was nothing, and then really, like, trying to look for something out of nothing i like that comparison to the metabolist makes me feel better about the generation you know yeah, man like you know when i was like when i saw that movie detropia about detroit oh yeah, that, yeah. the creative mm -hmm. urge that's like happening in that place of bottom it's like amazing you know and i'm just like whenever there's zero right whenever something happened to turn your life into zero just Take a moment to feel really awful about it because, yeah, it is depressing and you have to comfort yourself some way, but like look for an answer. And like people who look for an answer rigorously can do like amazing things. We mentioned, of course, having grown a bit older since, we're, we, since we got out of college, since the economy hit bottom. And this it brings to mind something that seemed like an interesting challenge to me about your having written this book, which was it's one thing to write a novel, to be a young writer, to write a novel with an older protagonist and to observe that character who's older you can see their foibles fairly clearly it's another thing to be an older novelist to write about a young protagonist you can see their foibles clearly you can see their strengths clearly as well but to be a young novelist writing a slightly younger character that seems like it's a, a difficult zone to be in because you've got to see you've got to see someone clearly you got to see a character clearly who's of the age you just left you know what i mean is that was that was that a challenge was that a challenge that was sort of that presented itself to you in that form were you thinking about that at all i was so scared when i was writing this book i i literally i only wrote this book because i needed something to keep myself occupied because i was like terrified i didn't want to because you know i was i actually i do have experience working at a deli yeah. i do have experience you couldn't write this book if you didn't have that <laughs> um i think I was trying to make sense of my chaotic world at the time and I think that became the book. Like I was trying to figure out and understand my situation as best as possible. So it was like a 300 page therapy session with me alone for that took like two and a half years. And um, you know what, like I'm not the only person who's done this before. Like when I was in, when I was in Korea, um, the only books that I read, like for fun were uh, by by Charles Bukowski oh, yes. right like I read Ham on Rye like twice when I was in Seoul um, and I and I gave it to some of my friends at the time and they all read it they passed it along <laughs> to one another and it was like a traveling book thing but um, 
It's a fascinating view of Los Angeles. Los Angeles you'll get from that man as well. Amazing book. Well, that's more of his memoir, but he's written a lot of novels that like talk about his most recent past, doing manual labor, you know, him begrudgingly going to work, him making demands that make absolutely no sense in the, you know, in the capitalist society, but him still having the gall to say, I want to raise even though this is my second day at the job, you know, I don't know. I, I admire that style. And you know what? Bukowski went through a really hard life too. He had an abusive father. You know, he was an alcoholic. He had all these problems, and I think he writing was a form of therapy and helping him make sense of his world too. I think a lot of writers write out of a need to make sense of their world and their mind and their life, and that's what the book was about. And yeah, like you know, in retrospect now, when I read it, it's like. Like, oh, you know, poor thing, you know. But um, the the ending of the book was very, very. Uh, I had a very clear vision for it. The ending came to me very early on, and I I wanted the ending to be exactly that way, just to say, like, you know, there's really no answer right now, but you're gonna be totally fine, you know. So like, it was like I had to tell myself, like, there's no answer to any of your problems right now, but you're gonna be totally fine. Yes. You know, it's as important a conclusion as any to land on in a book like this. But tell me, in the process of let's go further back before the writing, what is what what kind of a window on humanity is a deli? What do you notice most? Um, it's really fast paced, so the rhythm is what I notice the most. And um, this deli in this book, it's located right at Madison Square Garden, and that's where Penn Station is. It's like everybody there is basically a commuter they, they have zero time for anything and um yeah so you notice the pace the rhythm and you also notice uh, the diversity you know you see like you know latino workers you see korean chinese workers almost all of them are immigrants the people who work there almost all of them work like five six almost sometimes seven days and they stand for 12 hours like i don't know how they do it you know um and a lot of uh you know, our generation, like, I'm 1.5 Korean-American, I guess that's what they call me or whatever. I don't know <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but a lot of our our generation's parents were Korean immigrants who worked at delis and places like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it's also a window into the immigrant life, immigrant labor work life. It's something that LJ learns about just having these conversations with her fellow employees there and about people employed elsewhere who are part of her world. And part of, part of it's like, she asks, she asks one character, which was better, which was better, you know, the job you're doing now or the agricultural work you were doing in Mexico. And he said, well, we got, we got weekends off doing agriculture, but here's better. And ultimately, there's a sense of, as long as it's better than the last thing you were doing, it doesn't really, matter as much if it looks bad to someone else you know what i mean like it's if i if i did something if you're doing sort of backbreaking labor and then you go up to something that's just stressful and very time consuming you've made a step up but it won't look like that necessarily to a character like lj right who's trying to get who's just sort of trying to take the measure of her own life you know let alone anything else right yeah in lj's case she has absolutely no like career goal in mind or anything all she is trying to do is survive you know in new york um i think i even wrote like what her financial like income was like month month oh. to month income yeah so much. it was so, so little i was like poor thing you know how did you survive um but 
yeah she she had like she was driven to work seven days a week only to survive it was like solely for financial survival reasons mm. this is it is in its way a narrative of struggle Delhi ideology and Narratives of struggle are quite common in the, in the field of Korean literature, and you've uh, you've done translation yourself. LJ also is a translator. Tell me about the kinds of lives you encounter when you're reading Korean literature of the kind that hasn't been translated yet. Um, a lot of the Korean literature that I've read happened to be from the modern era, so like 20th century literature, and that stuff is pretty bleak, and you know understandably so because Korea was it was either being occupied or war torn or you know culturally imperialized you know or separated or and now it's like you know suicide's an issue even though it's wealthy yeah very bleak but also there's um always like a very nuanced level of humor in it too I don't know. Um, I love it. Like, it's really, like, to me, it's a really wonderful experience to read those books and those short stories. And I don't know, I wish more people would read it to really understand, like, Korean psyche. Right. And that humor is not the easiest thing to convey when you're translating, right? No. It's, like, super nuanced. And, you know, maybe I just find it funny because of something else. Like, you know, <laughs> like maybe it's, like, a culture. Maybe they didn't intend it like that? You mean yeah. the author? Or maybe oh, I'm just laughing at somebody's misery, yeah. like well, a sicko. No, I Ga mean... There's gallows humor in every culture, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, misery is... I mean, what what is it? Misery plus time is comedy, right? So, yeah, like... Yeah, something like tragedy, misery. So, whatever bad thing plus exactly. time is comedy. Right. No, whenever there's something really awful going on, there's also, like, a huge potential for that to be hilarious at the right. same time and i don't know and you know what the the korean writers that i've read um there's like a some cheekiness to it too yeah, yeah. you know they satirize a lot of the stuff that goes on and you know yeah but some other stuff is like really bleak you know <laughs> it's, it's interesting you mentioned you know you're you might be finding things funny that even the author didn't necessarily intend with the perspective you have on korean literature and reading lj I think this was for in her voice, maybe it was in the third person, but in the book, talking about how she has a professor suggest she should go to translation, and she never thought about that because it was so instinctive to her. She just understood both English and Korean. First, I was just enraged because I was like, I've been studying Korean seven years. I can barely, <laughs> I can barely read a book, and this girl uh, can, can read instinctively. But there's something to that. I mean, I want to get a sense of you personally. You know, when you've, when you've been to Korea... Being in Korea for real and having thinking, having your mind to be in this world of Korean literature and also being able to think effortlessly in these two different languages, you get a perspective of Korea from outside the modern day and a perspective from outside the language as well. Does that make sense? It sounds pretty abstract, but you can step outside Korea, the intense reality of Korea in a couple different dimensions, can't you? Yeah. I mean, the only reason why LJ was able to understand both languages on an intuitive level is because Korean was her first language ever. It was the first language she was ever exposed to and then you know, she acquired the English language at a great age, which is age five. So, I mean, if you ever have a kid and you want your kid to be bilingual, you know, move. It's all about age five? <laughs> yeah, move at age four or five. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, so yeah, to her it was just very simple and natural mm. and 
it never even entered her mind that she could potentially read a book that is from Korea, written by a Korean writer, because she was reading English literature written by the white male canonical, you know, literary figures. And isn't that, like, so wild? Like, everybody I meet around me who's Korean-American, and I say, like, oh, like, at one period in my life, like, I researched modern Korean literature from the Japanese occupation. They're like, there's, wait, there are books that are... Exist? Yeah, Yeah. I was like, yeah, you can Uh, get it on Amazon. And they're like, why didn't I ever think to do this? I was like, don't blame yourself. It's just like, it's just, you know, it's the environment that you live in, you know? Right. Korean literature as a whole hasn't, to the consternation of some friends I have who translate it, has not quite hit the top of the zeitgeist in the West either. Maybe it will get to get higher, I'm sure, because it started out so unknown except to specialists that it had nowhere to, nowhere to go but more to more popularity. But, I mean, you get, do you feel like, you, you're, when you're in Korea, when you're writing about Korea today, do you, do you feel like it's the same land that you, you are immersed in when you're reading this older Korean literature? Do I feel like I'm in the same land? In the same culture. Is it, is, this like, is it recognizably, is there a recognizable connection to the literature you've, you translate or read or research and the place you go when you're in Korea? I can sort of recognize, like, the personalities, you know, or the, the feelings that would occur. You know how, like, some... I don't know, like, some of the Koreans, like, I'm around, they're very emotionally sensitive, mm-hmm. so... Um, but they won't directly address how they felt slighted at the moment. So they'll say something kind of around, roundabout way to like to to let you know. And right. you have to pick it up, you know. Right. And they call that nunchi, right? right. And um, yeah, I don't know. Like those little things like that, I can I I can identify and relate to and understand. But like the terrain, the landscape, the events. I mean, those things. I'm reading you know, stories that are set in a different period, right. in a different world. I mean, Seoul in 2015 is not what Korea was in 1945, 1950. Yeah. wasn't even called Seoul, right? It was something else. So, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a mix. Mm. Now, in the Seoul sections of Delhi Ideology, you, 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 give, uh, you give LJ a friend who is in Korea, he's foreign... He's a man. He's outside the culture, but has put much more effort to get inside it than most guys like him I've met in Korea. You know, he speaks the language and all that. Tell me what it was like to to be able to have it not just a character like LJ, but a character like Daniel, and be able to sort of approach the culture from those two different directions. Yeah, the Daniel figure, it can be a touchy topic, I think, immediately, because he's white male and he lives in Korea and his girlfriends are Korean so there is a stigma right like I have like these white uh, male friends of mine who lived in Seoul for a few years and they said whenever they see another white male guy they hate him I just don't look them in the eye when I see them <laughs> and isn't that so interesting I'm like I'm like that is so interesting because you're what you're thinking and not trying to face and you know, your that mild rage or that mild offense is like so misplaced and misguided, but you still sense it. So it doesn't mean that it's not true, but like it's just so many things. You know what I mean? Like anyway, I wanted I wanted somebody like that to be in this book because you know 
first of all, you shouldn't just like assume that a white guy's in Korea just to sleep with Korean women. Okay, it's right. a lot of effort to go to. <laughs> like it's, it is. it's trouble mean, to get over to get over I mean, there. Really, like you left everything in your <laughs> like in your country to go to another country for this for only this reason. I mean, it, it, I really hope that's not at all true, and it, it can't be. Um, yeah, the Daniel character, he had a lot of uh, genuine interest in art and design and architecture. And he is like this, uh, you know, the, the, the battle of the sexes kind of thing. I mean, he obviously helps that dynamic. Um, a love interest is always great in a book. And, um, but yeah, Daniel does a lot to help LJ's creative motivations. And, you know, he encourages her a lot and they kind of speak the same language when it comes to creative dialogue. And I think she gets a lot of, a lot out of that. And I think he does too. Mm-hmm. And, um, those moments were to me like really charming. And yeah, I wanted to sort of like take the time and sort of dwell on it and create that world in this book too. And I remember there's a moment in the book where. Daniel's talking about he, how he how he enjoys or feels like he has some mission to do that do that same thing for a lot of the people he meets in Korea to encourage them to to create, and it it bothers LJ that he says that. Why does it bother her? It bothers her because he says it in a certain way. Uh, okay. Like there's this one scene. I know what scene you're talking about, but he says like, you know, this girl like she has so much potential and talent, but she doesn't speak up and she won't do this and she won't do that. And he, he like faults her mm. for you know, for not doing what she should be doing according to him. And it was that sort of like authoritative, privileged tone that she took very personally. You know, it's like, you're going to come to another country and dictate how things should go. You have no idea what it was like for this woman to grow up trying to do a creative pursuit. You know, you have no idea what her circumstances must have been like. I mean, come on, you know, and I think LJ felt defensive with both as a woman, as a creative person as a Korean, Korean American, you know, so, yeah. Now, this book, we mentioned that it has halves in the sense of half of it being in New York, half of it being in Seoul, but it's also tripartite, and it's, you know, it's got essentially, correct me if I have this wrong, but, you know, a narrative in the beginning, a narrative in the end, and more of an essay in the center. And I guess what I want to know first is, when you're writing an essay from a point of view of a character, well, let's be specific, are there... Do you, do you ever disagree with LJ? Are there things you disagree with her about or you would you would sort of get into an argument with her about? All the time. <laughs> She's so angry in that second part. But I'm like, just like, I give LJ full permission to vent everything. Because she... You know how she gets into a few tiffs, like at the deli, like sure. people will say rude things to her about her race, about her gender, and you know. I just figured that kind of thing happens in New York. All the time, <laughs> like I every day I walk out, I, somebody cat calls me, somebody calls me a chink or something, you know, and it's like it's a nightmare, and you know, you you know, as a woman in the streets, like if you're not feeling safe, you you can't react to those kinds of comments, no matter how offended you are, because you don't know what kind of danger that might take you to. So I give her full permission to just say everything and anything that she has in her mind. And um, yeah, she also talks a lot about like the political things, you know, like whatever political knowledge or opinions that she has about Korea today. And before Korea was separated, what it was like. And she has a lot of opinions about, um, you know, Korean Americans and Korean immigrants in the U.S. and what they're doing and what's happening. A lot of 
things about race and class issues. And yeah, I wanted to give her like a, a place to just talk about all of those things at once, you know, without holding back at all. She criticizes academia a lot, you know. Everything. <laughs> yeah, everything. Actually, um, I did an interview with a hyphen magazine, this um, young poet. Um, she she asked me like okay so this is like off the record but like do you really think that academia is like a useless form I'm like no <laughs> like if you don't have scholars you don't have progress you know a lot of things trickle down from what the scholars you know find out for us and but LJ is so disillusioned by um, the world around her and how everybody is so discouraging of everything that she wants to do that she sort of like just talks shit about everybody <laughs> yeah what would you what would you tell her you know if you were hearing her speak all this to you if you were talking to her uh, you know in person what 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 could help what would you tell her i would just let her say everything i would listen to her i would make sure that she feels heard because i think people just feel angry and frustrated and bottled up and they start to yell or pontificate when they feel like they're not heard so i would listen to her completely and then i would also say but try and keep your avenues open, you know, just try on all the hats and try and keep your avenues open. The one thing, though, like, even though she has these, like, you know, like, outrageous, like, opinions and these stone-cold, like, facts that are, she's just, like, you know, going out with, she also keeps saying, like, I want to evolve, I want to evolve, I want to evolve. What she's saying is her opinion at that moment, at that place in time, it's going to change, you know, and she's, like... You know, her only goal is to evolve. Yeah, and I was going to bring it up because it, I think it resonated with it resonated with me, but it will also resonate with many readers. And you know, I don't know what I want to be. I don't know what I want to do. I just know that I want to evolve. Is it seems like the only goal you can have and still be sane. The other types of goals make you insane to a degree, right? Yeah, I think people who um, are ambitious and creative and they enjoy what they do. I think those people all have the same mission in mind is to evolve, to, to do the next best thing, to do something really wonderful. Um, there are some people who are completely comfortable with like the same day to day routine, like no change in opinion. Like they, you know, like no, no change in values or principles. They just want to, you know, you meet them when they're 18 and they're the same at 38. <laughs> do you know weird. what I mean? Like, it is strange, but there are some people who are very happy with that, and that's fine. But um, the people who have, like, a lot of creative drive and, like, they want to constantly see something new and interesting, th those people, they all share the same thing, which is just, like, this ideal of evolution. So what is it to LJ to evolve? What does it mean to her to evolve? That In her context, that is, that is what? Well, I left it vague. <laughs> for a reason i mean she's she probably wants to evolve um as a person you know she i'm sure she doesn't want to be that angry and sad and frustrated um and i'm sure she doesn't want to be that financially destitute and i think yeah she wants she wants something and she wants to get to a better place so yeah i don't know I, she i think she just wants to evolve into a better person like a more a more developed person i think that's what she wants to evolve into now the book delia theology is is published by thought catalog and it's a name a lot of people know uh it's got a lot of cachet and a certain i it's a there, it's it's a certain type of reader but it's also kind of it's it's widely read this site that there's not only offers books but there's a lot of articles people link around that are from thought catalog what would you say it's sort of cultural niche is thought catalogs 
It's a youth culture. Um, it's a millennial culture, definitely. Um, yeah, the book initiative took off, I think, in 2000, late 2000, early 2013. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, late 2012, early 2013. Um, they published two of my ebooks previously, short ones, and then, um, I couldn't get Delhi Ideology placed anywhere in a, in a bigger publishing house or agents because, you know, it's, it's hard to categorize it. Just fine. That was, it was fully intentional. Um, but yeah, the editor there, uh, the publisher, Mink and, uh, Chris, they, they were very supportive and they let me put out this book and, it's. I would say this book is different from the other stuff, but in, in some ways, like the same. Mm-hmm. And it's a. There's a sensibility match as well, in, in the sense of the, the 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 millennial culture. If we can use that label of thought catalog, it's. This is. And, and, and the sort of millennial culture reflected by Delhi ideology. It's the same again. To, I'll bring out the word milieu. You know, it's it's. This is all. These people all understand each other, right? They they know what they're doing, they know what they're doing or not doing in life, or they know they're all trying to do something. What do they? What do they? What do they know about each other? The people who are thought catalog readers and writers, the people who are readers of your book, you. I mean, there's a certain sense that, like, there's a moment in the book as well. I think where where the characters realize, you know, we joke about how bad our lives are, but we're all doing. This is basically what we're supposed to be doing. You know, what what is that? When does when do those when do those moments of realization come in in life or even in stories where it's like you know, yeah, it sucks, but this is this is overall the right thing. I don't know. I think any artistic career choice or artistic path or artistic goal is risky. You know, if you're not terrified of what you're doing, then. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. I mean, I'm not saying terrified like, you know, like you want to go rob a bank. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more like, oh, like what will I eat if I try to make it as an actress? Like I met a lot of those those kinds of people. Like I'm still friends with actors. And yeah, like actors like amaze me. Musicians too. And like, I don't know. Like you, you can't let your fears about failure like consume you and stop you from trying to do what you want to do or what you feel like is the right thing to do you know and um i think that's something that a lot of the people who contribute like artistic articles on thought catalog maybe have in common with lj and Delhi ideology and a lot of the thought catalog stuff like some of the articles are written in a bit of like an extremely an extreme ironic tone or you know like over the top confidence sure, that's sure, sure. that's almost like not even convincing right erotic in a way yeah yeah or maybe they believe that to be maybe. completely true um but it you can know. be both a parody and real somehow it's this it's both at once yeah yeah exactly um yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, people are just trying to make the best of their situation. I think, no matter what. So I think that's what that is. So there's this certain kind of ambition you're around when you're in New York. What kind of ambition are you around when you're in Seoul? What is it? How different does the ambition that's around feel there? Well, LJ in Seoul is like kind of a displacement, if you think about it. I went to, I went back to Seoul. Um, in February, just very recently. And uh, I was talking with like relatives and friends and they were like, I go to, and, and students, like high school students, they're like, I go, I leave the house at seven, six or seven, and I come home at 10 or 11. What? 
I was like, what the hell do you do? And they're like, I go to work. I was like, you're at the office from 7 to 11? They're like, uh-huh. I asked my, my cousin. He's, um, he's 19. Um, he's trying to go to college. And, I was, you know, he left the house at, like, 7, came home, like, past 10. And I was like, what do you do? He's like, I go to school, and then I go to, you know, Hagwon, yeah. cram school. Hagwon after Hagwon after yeah, Hagwon. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, I eat all three meals outside of my house. And I was like, what kind of life do you have? I mean, I didn't ask that, but I asked that, yeah. you know, internally. And it's like, the answer is none. Right. That's really sad. And, you know, in LJ's case, when she was in Seoul, she wasn't subject to that kind of atrocity, that kind of schedule. Right. It's, it's the sense in which it's much nicer to be in Korea as someone, as a foreigner or somebody with a foreign life established than as uh, somebody who's never left Korea, right? Yeah, somebody who's part of the system, that social fabric, you, you have certain responsibilities, you have demands, there are, you know, pressures all around you. Mm. You you have to be integrated into that system, but LJ was an outsider in a way. She, she you know, identity-wise, like, you know, she looked like them, she spoke the same language, she had family, she had a past history there and all this, but, like, she was totally outside of that system, so she really kind of, she was a bit of a flaneur, like, you know, walked around in Seoul and, like, took it in, and, of course, she had some anxieties, but, um, overall, like, it was a, a, a moment to, like, sort of nurture a creative mindset or maybe the courage even to be a creative person afterwards did you ever have to explain in korea what a flaneur is i think that would be an unenviable task nobody asked me that but i'm sure a lot of like smart i mean there are like you know college educated koreans who know who baudelaire is right right i mean of course they'll know but i'm just mean the general phenomenon now i can't imagine no korean person that i know would who's living been living in korea most or all of their lives would i think acknowledge that as a way you can spend time you know what i mean a lot of koreans go hiking though right that's true often with a lot to drink in their backpacks as well usually they're old though aren't they yeah well not all of them like some there are plenty of young people who say like oh let's just go on a little walk you know and uh they'll sort of use it as both exercise and also taking in the scenery and also right. having face time with the people they like. And there's mountains to go walking in around Seoul, so that, that Seoul helps. Seoul's so great because of those mountains. Oh my <laughs> yes, gosh. They need them there. It's the pressure valve. Oh, I love it. In the middle section of the book, in the that essayistic section, there's a, an observation that LJ references, which was fascinating to me, that I'd never heard it before, which was that, I mean, who knows how seriously to take it, but that Korean women are more creative than Korean men because Korean men have had it sort of squashed out of them by the mandatory military service. Is that the essence of that? Well, I mean, if you reduce anything down to that, it's going to sound awful. I don't know if it sounds so implausible, but, you know, that's the basic idea, right? Well, I don't know. You know, like, that famous line in To the Lighthouse when the painter says, um, or, or somebody, the painter, like, remembers a line somebody saying women can't paint women can't write mm. and she's so bothered by it i think maybe wolf was maybe once told the same line and maybe she just took it very personally mm. i mean women are told things like that all the time they've been told that for for like centuries basically you know and in korea still even to this day like look at the film industry it's booming right who are all the filmmakers that you know? Do you know a single female film? Oh, I'm sure you do, but like... They're, they're not usually living in Korea, though, right now. They're going to say 
Park Chanuk and Bong Jun Ho, right? But they're they're not gonna say like Im Sun Ne, who's amazing, you know? Um, What I'm saying is, it's like, I don't know, Korea, I I mean, not just Korea, but like, I think all of, a lot of our um, male dominated societies have a long way to go in order to recognize women as just as capable, Mm. just as talented as men who have stories that are different from theirs and therefore possibly more interesting you know okay the the line about uh men men's creativity being squashed by the military demands okay have you seen this movie called chung um no not chung uh it's called the few finder it's called um shoot chung 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 okay it's by this director i think her name was kim chung (laughs) it's so strange i saw it in busan film festival in 2009 and it was like the most unique movie I've ever seen. And uh, that line came from that movie. Uh. Yeah. This guy, he's Korean. He's an animator. But he was fired. And he was replaced by a Japanese animator. And he said the reason why Korean male artists have a limit to them is because they feel a certain shackle to the Earth's realities. Because they know a certain kind of pain that the Japanese men aren't necessarily subject to by demand by their government and that is that korean men have to do military service this duty it's like obligated whereas japanese men don't have to train that way and you know just from the stories that these guys tell you it's like they have to run like eight kilometers or whatever and then after when they reach the finish line like they have to shout out the word mother (laughs) i mean can you imagine like the trauma the breaking picture it but yeah yeah like, oh my god, you know? And it's like, that would really mess with your head. Sure, of course. So the, 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 what the Korean anime was saying is that Korean males have a certain kind of undeniable trauma that scarred them for life. And that might hinder their creative potential in some way because they're so aware of reality and its pains and it's, you know, how pragmatic it is. And the Japanese, it's like, their potential for surrealism and dreamland it's like th- there's no end in sight Quite well known around the world the, you know it's sort of the wild the wild fantasies that japanese movies and and novels and comics and whatever music can go on are well known it's less known about korean say film is less known for that but then again korean film is known for being one of the most creative nationalities of film right now, right? Exactly. That's why, like, you know, you have to take that quote from the movie with a grain of salt. I think the only reason why the filmmaker put that line in there is to criticize the government and just, like, men who are obsessed with war and, you know, problems like that. Like, she's making more of a political statement rather than criticizing men. And in LJ's case, she said men can't paint men can't write to echo what you know wolf had once written but in the other way and also to acknowledge the fact that look if if the creative part of you can be squashed because of this military pain that men go through who are the ones who are not subject to that pain they're the women so women can be just as creative and have just as much potential as the, these Japanese male animators that you guys so love. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like you have you have that element. It's right here in this country. Right. Why don't you encourage that and nurture that and take advantage of that? Women are, are not obligated to, to do the military service. They can volunteer, of course, but it's not obligated. So that that's sort of the point I was making. And uh, Bruce Fulton had talked about the same thing. Like he was, you know, his 
last few editions of um, the contemporary and modern women short story collections. I mean, they were all about women, you know, it's like women writers collections. And it's like, I mean, he discusses it too. Like women writers are the ones that are like really dominating the literary sphere right now. And right, and this is a quote for the listener who might not know. Uh, Bruce Fulton is a is a well known translator of Korean literature, and you know, it's I may be drawing too many parallels, but I'm thinking, you know, Korean literature. Yeah, it's been not well known for a long time it's in the in the West, um, but it's coming up, and it seems to be especially. In the last 20 years, but especially the past 10 and especially the past five, we've been seeing more of it become available in English. And in the same way, uh, I feel like people were people were writing these sort of lazy millennials articles, uh, even as far back as 10 years ago, if, depending on your definition of millennial, 15 years ago. And those seem to be going away. The ambition seems to be getting recognized uh, of the millennial, just in the same way that the ambition of Korean literature is getting recognized. I mean, is it? Do you see a similar pathway for? They both seem to be, the, they both seem to be coming out of their sort of periods of ambiguous. What is this? Does it exist? Why isn't there more? You know what I mean? Yeah, and growing wings, and you know, really taking off. Yeah. I mean, you've seen. From, from the millennials you know and keep an eye on. Uh, and I hate to keep sticking that label on us, but it's the one we've been given. Um, <laughs> what, uh, I mean, see, there's, there's reasons for optimism, yes? Yeah. You have to be optimistic, man. You can't just be like, oh, like, New York Times wrote this awful, damning article about all of us. Right. Well, all, that's now five years us. old or so, right? Yeah. So, and there's not that, not been that many more. I was like, lady, come on. You know, I, I, uh, that article really, like, it really bugged me. Um, I'm not saying she's a bad lady or anything, but, you know. Yeah, you have to be hopeful. And, you know, what, millennials were probably... One of the critiques that she said about millennials was like, they don't really seem to care. They don't really seem to worry. It's like, first of all, you don't know whether they worry or care because you're not in their brain. They're probably terrified. I was. I kept it together, though, you know. Um, and the whole, like, not caring thing was more like, I wanted to seem as normal and in control as possible. I was still scared, but, you know, I don't know. Like, that period was, like, a good time for me to think about where I wanted to go, you know, a time to reflect on my values and what what's going on in society that can help me, what's going on in society that I would like to see, you know, changing, you know? Like, asking yourself the right questions and then looking for the answers to those questions. I think that's sort of, like... I don't know. I think that's just the only two things that maybe like my people, my peers were doing around me. Yeah. And it's it's what it's what LJ does, but she also finds a sort of she finds a, a refuge in a, a kind of internal neutrality. I don't know. She's she doesn't seem so worried, but what is it? She she finds a place within herself where it's just like I'll just observe things and I won't I won't tie myself in knots with specific aspirations. You know. I don't know what the answer to that is, or I, I don't well, know. What, how to what even to call it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, I think almost everybody goes through a period like that, mm -hmm. right? The people who say like, I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was five, and I'm like, really? <laughs> and you're a doctor now? And they're like, yeah, I am. I'm like, that's amazing, you know? I mean, there are some people who can do that, and there are others who can't. I think it's because like, the other thing that I was really angry about <laughs> that I channel through LJ, okay. Um, who is fiction, by the way, um, is like how uh, everybody wants to um, label you into one reductive thing. It's 
it's like, oh, that's that's who you are. That's what LJ is. That's what this is. That's what that is. But it's like when you're a human being, like, you know, you take in a lot of information from a lot of different experiences, a lot of different things, elements, whatever. And like your makeup is not identifiable to one single thing. Right. right? And it's like with the career thing, it's like, oh, so like, what do you do? It's like, I don't know, like how to answer that question. You know, right. I really don't because it's like, I do a lot of things. But, you know, I just don't want you to think of me as that one thing, really, you know. Mm. I don't know, whatever. Maybe I'm, like, being too resistant, I guess, you know. Because, like, how else do you smoothly walk through society? And, you know, the, uh, or even smoothly walk through New York. Although New York teaches you in a way that you know, you've got everything there. You've got every type of person there. Uh, you just got to find a way to work together, right? Yeah. And they do. We do. And, yeah, I don't know. You know what? Like, when I when I say that I don't like it when people... Um, reduce you to just one thing it's like I'm criticizing more of like western notions of capitalism and how like you have to be that one thing because you have to serve a certain function and if you don't serve that function then you're dispensable like we can get rid of you that's how capitalism works and I think that's what I'm reacting against like it's so discomforting and it makes me so anxious and a lot of other people share that feeling so and it's something that they can see expressed. They can they can see they can see the way one particular character, who I will put no labels on, but to call her one particular character named LJ. They can see her work through that in Delhi Ideology, mm-hmm. the new novel from my guest today on the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, Grace Jung. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been again the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at LA Review of Books.org. Thanks.